If you guys would please stand with me and grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going through 1 Peter. We'll be on page 1014. 1014, those black Bibles around you in your chairs. Start a new book. 1 Peter, we'll spend about the next 12 weeks in it together, which I am pumped for. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. The word of the Lord. You guys may be seated. I heard a story this, this past week uh, about a carpenter, a carpenter who was old, who put his time in, and he was ready to retire. So he told his boss, who he's worked with for a number of years, he's like, I'm done. I'm going to retire. And the boss was, was heartbroken because this guy is such a worker. He's such a faithful worker, and he did great work. And so he said, man, okay, I, I understand that, but could you build one more house for me? And reluctantly, the guy said, yeah, sure, I'll build one more house for you. And so when he started the house, he, he didn't get after it like he usually does. He, didn't, he used uh, different workmanship, uh, used poor workmanship, uh, inferior materials. Uh, the work crews that he, again, worked with weren't aren't as the best. And uh, needless to say, it wasn't the best house he ever built. And then when the house was done, his boss came and he gave him the keys to the house that he just built. And he says, this house is yours. You've been such a faithful worker, and I just wanted to, to honor you and bless you since this is going to be the last house you build. You can imagine what the builder thought. He thought, oh my goodness, if I would have known that, I would have built it differently. I would have built it differently. And the point is, all of us in here are, are building a house. Maybe a house is a metaphor for our lives. All of us in here are, are, are every single day, we make choices to build a house, to, to grow our lives. And this is one of the reasons why we picked the, the book of 1 Peter to go through next. We, we finished up Genesis in the, um, in the winter here, and now we're going through 1 Peter. Uh, because 1 Peter is a book that is going to stretch us theologically, it's going to stretch us practically on how to build and how to build a, a, a strong house, a strong foundation on Jesus. It will help us sustain the, the pounding winds and the rains and the, the troubles that come, the suffering that we will endure here living in a Genesis 3 world. And it will help us live a, a life of joy and hope now, in a place that's not our final home, our final destination. So to sum it all up, the reason why we picked this letter is because this is a letter for us today. In the culture that we are living in, 1 Peter talks directly to you and to me on how we are to live in this world. So again, we're going to spend the next 12 weeks in 1 Peter together, and I am excited and pumped. And we see the first point in verse 1, the guide for our journey. The guide for our journey through 1 Peter is Peter himself. He is the author, 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, it was, my, it was tempting for me just to rip through Peter and the apostle because we are familiar with Peter. We know what it means to be an apostle. But I just want to pause. I want us to understand the background in which Peter writes because we might be able to resonate with the, the commands in his reading as, and in his teachings as we go forward. When he talks about marriage, knowing that Peter was married, we'd be like, oh man, he knows what he's talking about because he's married. 
He knows how to deal with his wife. He knows how to respond to his wife, etc. And so I'm just going to pause one second, just kind of give a little bit of background to Peter, to reintroduce us to him. And maybe even to contrast him to Paul. Um, as we know, Paul's letter, sometimes it's, it's tough to relate to Paul, right? If you study the, the book of Romans or some others, he, he, go, he goes deep. Paul, lots of times, spending his time, he's talking up here. And when we get to Peter, he's kind of talking down here, right? We can understand Peter a little bit more. Um, and for me, even, it's, un, it's harder to understand Paul than it is to Peter. Peter's like one of the boys. He's a guy that, you know, you can sit down and watch a game with or go fishing with, right? The one thing I love about Peter is he's not, he wasn't real churchy. He wasn't real churchy. Where you look at Paul, you might think, well, Paul was maybe a little bit more churchy, right? If we kind of contrast Paul and Peter, like Paul was a little bit more Ivy League and Peter was a little bit more state school, right? You know what I'm saying? Like if you look at the, Paul, the, the pedigree of Paul, like he came from the, the greatest family line. He went to the most prestigious universities. He had the greatest teachers. And when it comes to Peter, the where, where he got his wisdom, where he learned about life was, was on a fishing boat, on daily getting up and grinding it out on a fishing boat. We also see that Paul's teachings, like I said, can be like a, a graduate course, and Peter's almost like street wisdom. Even Peter himself says the things that Paul teaches sometimes are hard to understand. And I'm like, yes, Peter, I, I get it. I agree with you. Anyone else in here agree with Peter? Amen. But here's the thing. Of course, we need both Paul and Peter. Both are invaluable to our walks. Both are invaluable to help us understand the gospel and how to live in this life. Both are invaluable to help us build our house on the foundation of Jesus. So who was Peter? First of all, we know that Peter was not his original name. What was Peter's original name? Simon, right? Simon was his original name. And Jesus changed it in Matthew 16, where Peter correctly answered the question where Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And Peter immediately said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And it's that moment that, that Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter. Now we know that sometimes Peter lived up to that name. Peter means rock. And we know he lived up to that name. He was a rock in the midst of a culture. But there was other times he was weak as sand, right? Like I said, we know he was a fisherman. He was a businessman. He owned a successful fishing business with his brother and with his dad. He was uh, from the region of Galilee. He was, and people from that region were known as passionate, hardworking, independent people. People that were opinionated. People that were strong-willed. People that were confident. And doesn't that describe Peter? I mean, if Peter took the DISC you know, personality test, he'd be like that high D kind of guy, right? That would be Peter, described from Galilee. Uh, he was chosen. He was called by Jesus to be one of his disciples in Matthew chapter 4. And we see when, when Jesus called him to follow him, we see that also Peter was a man of faith, of deep faith, because it says he left everything immediately and followed Jesus. The successful business that he built, his family, he left it all to follow Jesus. He was a man of faith. Of the disciples, he was the leader among the disciples, among the twelve. When all the... Uh, when they're named out in the New Testament, the list of the disciples and the early followers of Christ, um, sometimes the names change in those lists. There's three or four throughout the New Testament, except for Peter. He's always number one. So he was the leader. He was the main spokesman of the disciples. He was also loyal. 
He was also a loyal follower to Jesus. You remember when the, the Romans came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Gethsemane. You remember what, Jesus, what, what Peter did? Yeah, he bowed up, right? He had a little sword with him because he could bleed in concealed carry. So he had a little sword with him. So he pulled, out the, he pulled out the sword and he went to strike the high priest. Now he might have been loyal, but he was a terrible swordsman and fighter because he missed the high priest totally and he chopped off the high priest's servant's ear. You guys remember that, right? So that was Peter. He was loyal. He also had a hard time controlling his tongue, as we know. He liked to talk. He was a chatty Cathy, right? He was chatty and relevant. Some say that he had a a foot-shaped mouth because he was constantly putting his foot in his mouth, right? And we also know that Peter struggled with sin. He, He struggled with pride. He struggled with legalism, as we saw in Galatians chapter 2, or in Galatians. But this is what we also know about Peter, is I think that Peter understood the gospel of grace maybe better than even any of the disciples that he served with, with Jesus. I think he understood the gospel of grace perhaps more than anyone else. We, we all know that Peter was the, the one that was following Jesus at a distance when he was arrested and he denied Jesus three times. And we know when that third time, when, the, when the, the rooster crowed, it says in the scriptures that Peter and Jesus' eyes met. And at that point, Peter's life was wrecked. Wrecked, failure, coward. These aren't the traits of a Galilean. These aren't the traits of the follower of Christ. And yet he crippled in, in that test. And yet, after the resurrection in John 21, what does Jesus do? He seeks out Peter individually, particularly. He seeks out Peter, and then he finally gets the time to, to come, and he, and he has this meeting on the beach with Peter. And what does he do? He doesn't condemn Peter. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, you're a stinking failure. You're supposed to be the leader. You're supposed to want to stand up. He doesn't call him a a failure, doesn't call him worthless. He doesn't kick him off the team, right? He does something absolutely amazing Jesus does to Peter. This is what he does. He entrusts Peter with the most precious thing on earth to Jesus, his people, his sheep. He tells Peter, this is my most precious thing on the earth. Tend them. Feed them, lead them. You are going to be one of my chief shepherds of my church. You're not a failure. You're a chief shepherd. You're not kicked off the team. I'm entrusting you with my most prized possession, Peter. And what do you think that did to Peter? Well, we know that what it did to Peter. This forgiveness, this restoration, this this gift of grace that, that Jesus restored Peter. It just propelled his life. And his passion all the more. So we see that in Acts chapter 2 of the early church. Peter gives the first sermon. The first Christian sermon. And what happens? 3,000 people come to Jesus. This is who wrote the book of 1 Peter. Someone that we can tangibly relate with. This is Peter. One last thing it says about Peter here particularly. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not only was he a disciple, but when Jesus died and rose again, now the disciples became apostles. They they became the ones that would carry the torch of the message of the gospel and the legacy of Jesus. And what what Peter is saying is that, that Jesus has given me a unique authority. 
this role of apostle. Now, the word apostle is used two ways in the New Testament. Um, sometimes it's used in a very general way. Apostle all means is sent out ones. So we see sometimes, I think it's in the book of Acts, where we see some people are sent out as missionaries, and they're called apostles. We, we would call them today a lowercase apostles. But here we are, see Peter is what we would call an, a capital A apostle. Uh, this is the, the, the office of an apostle. This is uh, used specifically in its narrow sense, that there is only a handful, 12 to 13 men, uh, that have been called apostles in the Bible that are directly commissioned by Jesus. They, they, they heard Jesus teach, and then they were directly sent out by Jesus. They were his representatives, and Jesus gave them the authority to do all kinds of crazy miracles and teachings and writing down the scripture, etc. This is what a capital A apostle was. The last apostle, the last capital A apostle, John, who died on the island of Pat- Patmos, when he died, that office died with them. There are no longer today any capital A apostles, only lowercase a apostles, those that are sent out as missionaries. And so this is what Peter says, I am an apostle of Christ, so I carry a unique authority. One thing also cool to note about this this phrase of Jesus Christ, out of all the offices uh, in here, it's only used for um, the uh, apostle of Jesus Christ. It's only on that. It's not used for teachers. You don't see teachers of Jesus Christ. You don't see prophets of Jesus Christ, and you don't see evangelists of Jesus Christ. So this is a a unique role, a unique category, a unique office of the Christian church. Therefore, since Peter uh, walked with Jesus, since Peter was taught by Jesus, since Peter was then commissioned by Jesus to represent him, we should want to really give ear and build our lives on this letter, on what Peter has to say for us. Because what Peter has to say for us in this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is perfect. It's infallible. It is inerrant. He's going to tell us how we live as elect exiles in a world, in a culture today, much like it was for him. So we would be good and do well to listen. This is why I'm so pumped to go this, this next 12 weeks with you. So this is who Peter was. He's the one that's going to guide us over the next 12 weeks. Secondly, we see the passengers of this journey. Uh, Who are the passengers? They are the elect exiles here. They are the Christians. They are you and me. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse uh, 1b. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of dispersion, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The epistle, this epistle, epistle is just a, a fancy word for letter, is, is what's known as a general letter. Um, we have like letters of like Philippians and uh, Ephesians and, and even Galatians, which we see here as a, as a region mentioned, that those were written to a specific church. This is a, a general letter. This is, is, this is written to a geographical location where all these little cities are. It would be today like, it would be, it would be in modern day Turkey, that this letter would be travel around modern day Turkey. And as we just sit and pause, and as we've been praying for Iran and, and Iraq and, and this Middle East and, and Turkey, I'm sorry, it'd be modern-day Turkey, not modern-day Iraq, would, where these letters would be, not Turkey, modern-day Iraq. Um, they could use a little wisdom from Peter, right? They, they would benefit by uh, opening up the book of First Peter, and how do we respond uh, to uh, one another? 
So again, we see that this, this, this is written to a specific group of people in these regions, and they're called elect exiles. In other words, this is uh, uh, believers. These are Christians. These are those that have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus. Most commentators believe that there are some Jews in these areas, but the majority of the people that, that Peter is writing to is to Gentiles, is to Gentile Christians. And what's interesting is, is this, this little, these little words, elect exiles, um, was only used in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel, was only used for Jewish believers, and never for Gentiles. This was the, the name that would kind of separate Israel from the surrounding nations. They were known as uh, elect exiles. But yet here, Peter is using this for Gentiles. He's broadening the definition to Gentiles. And what we see here is this is the, the grafting in of you and me to God's plan, to his chosen people. And we see that in Romans chapter 11. The other interesting thing about this, how, how Peter is using this phrase primarily probably for Gentile Christians, is that Peter didn't at first really understand this being a Jewish man. He didn't understand how Gentiles could be a part of God's chosen people, the elect. You guys remember when we went through Acts chapter, uh, we went through the, the book of Acts here, and in Acts chapter 10, do you guys remember what happened in Acts chapter 10, where Peter has this crazy dream by the Lord, and he's called to, to, to seek out these, these Gentile animals and to kill them and to eat them, and he's like, no way, Jews don't eat this kind of food, and God's saying like, no, eat this kind of food. It's okay, Peter. These things are now clean that, I, that used to be unclean. And it says this in Acts chapter 17, that Peter was internally perplexed by this dream. It, it didn't relate to him that now he was going to go and have fellowship and eat Gentile food with this guy named Cornelius who was a Gentile. That didn't register to him because Jews and Gentiles were separated. But now what we see is God bringing the Gentiles into God's chosen people. And, and this is what the gospel does. This is what the gospel does. The, the gospel unites people from different backgrounds. The gospel unites people from different ethnicities or social structures in the world, in our country, in our states, and in our cities. Now, it may take a little bit of time like it did with Peter. Peter couldn't put these two things together. But what we see by the end, when he writes First Peter, and he's an older man, he is now writing to Gentile Christians, and he's, and he's using terms that described the Jewish nation of the Old Testament. It's an incredible thing. Peter got it. The gospel must be producing in you and in me a profound willingness to accept people, again, with different backgrounds and cultures as brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only that, not only accept those that have come to faith, but also be the ambassadors to those who are not in the faith that are different than us. That we need to be taking the message of the gospel to the Irans, to the Iraqs, to our neighbors, to everyone. So that we see that later on in Acts, he says this, this is how Peter sums up Acts in Acts chapter 20. He, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 10, he says this in verse 29. He says, and he said to them, Cornelius, 
You yourselves know how unlawful it is for Jews to associate with or to visit anyone of any nation, i.e. Gentiles. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And so here we see with Peter this transformation of him writing to now writing Jewish, I mean to writing Gentile Christians as now a part of God's chosen people, his elect exiles. So let's look a little deeper at this, these two words, elect exiles. First, we see that these people are elect or chosen by God. Now, as you study your Bible, if you studied your Bible at all, you see that the doctrine of election is, is all over. It's from Genesis through Revelation. It's all over the New Testament. And we, we just went through the, the book of Genesis, and we saw that, that God is an elector. God is, is the one who chooses everything. God chose to create the world. God chose to create Adam and Eve. God chose Noah out of a bunch of people. God chose Abraham out of all the people that he could have chosen, out of all the other pagans living around him, out of the land of Ur. He specifically chose Abram, who then became Abraham. We know that God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. We know that God chose Jacob instead of Esau. We know that the Lord chose the nation of Israel rather than any other nation in the world back then. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says this, For you are a people holy to God. The Lord your God chose you. He elected you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. He was speaking to Israel. God honed in on the nation of Israel and elected them. We see Jesus, James, John, Matthew, Luke, Paul all write about this and almost in all their letters Paul says this in Ephesians 1.4, He chose us to be His before the creation of the world. Romans 9.11 said He chose us before we had done anything good or bad. So election is all over the Scripture. Election is this, uh, because of God's love, and that's key, because of God's love, He elects or chooses those whom He will save through His free grace and not because of any merit of an individual. That's what election is. Because of God's love, he elects and chooses those on whom he will save through his free grace and not because of any merit of an, ed, uh, of an individual. Now, as we know, if we've been around church and if we heard the, the terms Calvinism and Arminianism and election and free will and all this stuff, that this, this doctrine can be confusing to some and it can be controversial and people can debate. But let me tell you right now, this is not an issue that should divide the church. It's not an issue here that divides our fellowship at the crossing. But it is in the Scripture. Because the natural question comes up when we hear that God elects and chooses. The immediate question comes up, well, what about human responsibility? How can God hold people responsible if He is the one who chooses who gets saved and who doesn't get saved? Where is human responsibility? Where is repentance? Where is faith? Where is the act of believing? And again, as we know, there there is mystery here. There is mystery between God's election and human uh, responsibility. I love how Charles Spurgeon kind of sums it up. And if you guys are new, we hear you hear these people that we talk about. Charles Spurgeon is probably one of the greatest pastors, preachers, uh, theologians that the church has ever seen. We love Charles Spurgeon here, and this is what he says about election. He says, "I never try to reconcile friends because both are taught." And both are true in Scripture. And so we're going to take the lead from Charles Spurgeon here. Like when we come to um, election in the Scriptures, like here, we're going to to preach on election. 
And when we come to passages that talk about repentance and faith and the response that we are called to, we're going to preach that in the text. And so that's how we're going to handle these passages. One thing I want to point out, though, about election when it comes to salvation, there's one crucial fact that we see in Scripture throughout. It's that God's election always precedes man's faith. And never do we see it the other way around. God's election, His choosing, always precedes man's faith. There's a, a gazillion verses we could look at, but let me just point to Acts 13, verse 8. As many who were appointed to eternal life believed. And notice there's those who were appointed, those who, are who elect, those who were chosen who would believe. And so we see that in Scripture. Election always precedes man's faith. Now, this is not a big deal for Peter, obviously, because he writes the book of 1 Peter, and he tells us that you already elect exiles, right? Uh, next week, we're going to see that he says that, uh, verse 3, he, uh, he caused us to be born again, because he knows this is exactly what happened to him. He knows this is exactly what happened to him in his calling. And again, in Matthew chapter 4, we see this. We see Jesus told Peter and Andrew, here he is. Here's the choice of Christ the election. Follow me, Peter and Andrew, and I will make you fishers of men. Peter and Andrew weren't the only fishermen on the dock that day. There were probably hundreds out there getting ready to get in their boats, but Jesus specifically went to Peter and Andrew and chose them. And then what happened? It says they immediately laid down their nets and they followed Jesus. They did what? They responded. They responded by faith. So these two are friends. They go hand in hand. God elects and then we, by faith, follow. So this is election. This is great news for you and me this morning. This idea that we are elect exiles. This is good news. The reason why is because in my definition, I gave you the motivation of God's election and God's choosing. God's motivation for this election and choosing is love. Is love. You go back to Deuteronomy 7 that I read earlier to you about God choosing the nation Israel. It goes on to say this. This is, this is how God puts it. Where did my glasses go here? This is how God puts it in Deuteronomy chapter, six, uh, chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And here's his motivation. It was not because you were more in number than any other, but it is because the Lord set his love upon you. And on you, he chose you, for you were the fewest among all the people, but it was because God loved you. That's the motivation of God's election, is his love. And all of us want to be loved unconditionally, don't we? All of us want us to be loved, not on our merits, not on what we look like, not on how much money we have, not on what we do. We want to be loved because, we are, because the giver is lovely. Election goes hand in hand with love. And so this is it. So this is uh, the election this morning. We are elect because God loves us. So not only that, we are, it says that we are elect exiles. We are elect exiles. Now, what is an exile? It's a, a, we, we, we sung about it. We're sojourners. We are aliens. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are people who do not belong where we are at. That's what it means to be a sojourner or an exile or an alien, is that uh, we don't belong where we are at, where we are living. 
And the great thing is, like, who's in here been to a foreign country? Somewhere outside of the United States, right? Now, when you go there, we all have one feeling. What's that feeling? We don't belong here, right? This is not our home, though we love it. And then we, 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 we enjoy it, and we, we go to different places to enjoy the, the beauty and the creation, etc. We know that there's different traditions, there's different things that, that don't feel homely to us. And though we like being there, it's like, man, I can't wait get to get back to my home. This is what Peter is saying to the Christians in these areas. He's saying that though you may be residents of Pontius, though you may be residents of Galatia, though you may be residents of the United States of America... You are an alien. You are a sojourner. You are an exile. This is not truly your home. You're you're different. You've been been made a citizen of the kingdom of God because you repent and trusted in Christ. You belong to another kingdom. You belong to another country now. You belong to another leader. And so there should be a little little bit of, um, what's the word, restlessness in your heart, in my heart. That as we look around and we live and we go to work and, and we go to play in and, and, and this northern Colorado that, yeah, it's awesome, but there's something, there's a restlessness, like there, there's something more. There, there, I don't belong here. There should be a little tension of you living here, even again, this, in beautiful northern Colorado. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look, as I live, as I experience the culture we live in, I feel a tension. I feel this tension. Don't you? Do you feel this tension? Um, Tim Chester writes a book called Everyday Church, and it's really a great little book on, uh, kind of, it's kind of like a commentary on 1 Peter. And this is what he says about this section about us being exiles. He quotes one and says, The greatest challenge is the growing secularization of society where Christianity is being increasingly squeezed out of our national life. The ultimate result of this tendency will be a society that is hostile to Christian truth and practices. Do you feel that at all where you live? Do you feel that at all where you go to school? Do you feel this tension at all where you work? Do you feel this tension at all when you turn on the TV? You see that? He goes on and he quotes this other guy named Stuart Murray and Stuart Murray says that we have, and we would, we'd say yes and amen, that we have gone from a kind of a Christian culture to now a post-Christian culture. That's the culture that we live in. And he has these seven categories in which we feel this tension, this shift. And I'm not going to go into them in detail. You don't have to write them down, but let me just rip them off to you and see again if you feel this tension. It's like, yeah, this, this, is, this feels right. And it's this, he says this, we have gone as Christians from the center to the margins. In Christendom, the Christian story and the churches were central, but in the post-Christendom, they are marginal. I mean, if you think about it, even 50, 60, 70, even 100 years, our lives revolved around church, revolved around Sundays. Is that the case these days? These days? No, no. He goes on, he says, we went from the majority to the minority. Yeah, is that true? Today, there's a stat that says, uh, that, says that only 20% of Americans attend church regularly. I definitely think that we've gone through the majority to the minority. From senators to sojourners, 
from privilege to plurality. Uh, there used to be the Christian ethic that kind of ruled our country. I started with, you know, basic, the Christian ethic with our Constitution, but now that seems to be decaying away. From control to witness, from maintenance to mission, and I love this one, from institution to the movement. He says in Christendom, churches operated mainly in an institutional mode, but now in post-Christendom, we must become again Christian movements, meaning that people that don't believe aren't flocking to churches. The church has to go to them. Do you guys feel these shifts again where you live, work, and play? Does this sound like as you look at society, you're like, yeah, I agree with what is what's happening here. So we feel these tensions, don't we? And I think they're good. Now, some people feel these tensions and they freak out. They wig out. They think, oh, man, all this thing is happening. We're, you know, we can't set up a nativity set at our, our government buildings now more. Man, the world is coming to an end, right? And their whole world is wrecked because they see these Christian values being decayed. But I think it's actually good for us. And I don't think we need to get alarmed. Now, do we need to fight? Do we need to stand up? Do we need to talk for truth? Absolutely. But I don't think we need to get so wigged out where we think the whole world and there's no hope coming. Why? Because what what our society is doing, it's reminding us that this isn't our final destination. What's happening in our culture is reminding us that we were created, we are exiles to another place that we are longing to live and to be a part of. You see, actually what is happening is that even though we're a post-Christian culture, our culture is moving more towards Peter's culture, where it was a pre-Christian culture. That's what is taking place. So in this sense, we don't, we don't have to, to wig out. We, we run into people practically. We run into people who have no idea who Jesus is or what the Bible is. Matt Whitney and I were talking uh, in my study right before. He said uh, this past year, um, it was Easter, and he said, well, I'm going to go to church, you know, and uh, to his buddies because they wanted to go to the mountains. And they're like, why, why, well, well, what is Easter? Is that like Jesus' birthday? Is that why you're going to celebrate Jesus' birthday, right? There, there's no Christian grid. There's no Christian ethic. Brandon was another one we talked yesterday at man school where he's ministering to a kid on the college campus of CSU that has no idea who Jesus is, has no idea what the Bible is. This is the the culture in which we are now growing up with, growing up in. It's a post-Christian culture. It actually looks a lot like a pre-Christian culture. So even though we're exiles and strangers, and this is what we're called to live, uh, these things should should be, again, in our heart, making us long for heaven, making us long for the kingdom of God to come. And yet we're still here. And so while we're still here, we need to to live and be faithful and fruitful uh, exiles here and now and and share the gospel. So how do we do that? Well, this is what Peter's going to help us do over the next five chapters. He's going to unpack this for us on how we live as exiles with those around us. It's not going to call us, he's not going to call us to fully assimilate into the culture, and it doesn't mean that we completely withdraw from the culture. And again, this is why I'm so excited to go through 1 Peter. So just think about your life right now, what, what Peter is going to call us to. 
is that we are called to live among those that have no category for Jesus, have that no category for the life. The Christian ethic does not guide them, but evolution guides them, science guides them, uh, whatever they, their flavor of the day guides them. And we are to be rubbing shoulders. We are to be living alongside these people, with these people, so that when cancer hits us, when a financial crisis hits us, when we do lob rockets or we do take out someone in Iran, and all of a sudden the whole world is going nuts, so like this is World War III, the end of the world, and people look to you and they see a, a calm, a peace, a patience. They're like, man, how, how are you not getting so riled up right now? And they're going to ask you, and here's where you're going to be able to give a reason, or give a defense for the reason of the hope that lies within you. You're going to be able to use your life to, to point them to the reason why you're not freaking out with all these crazy things happening. Because you know Jesus. You know that you are not made for this world, but there's something better that you're looking forward towards. And you get there by coming to faith in Christ. And so this is why we need the book of 1 Peter, because it is again going to guide us on how to live in this culture without undermining our convictions or beliefs. And then finally, we see third, we see the planners of our journey. It's the Trinity. It's God himself in verse 2. It says, To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of his blood. Whose plan is this for you and me, to be elect exiles? It's the Trinity. It's the one God in three persons. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that is engaged with you, that is intimately involved with you. He has a plan for your life, and he has put you in Fort Collins, in northern Colorado, in January, whatever we are, 11th or 12th, 2020, for a specific reason and purpose, to be used as ambassadors, to be used as elect exiles to those who don't know, to be his ambassadors for Jesus. Now, this is awesome. Again, think and, and hear this, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are intimately involved with you and in your life right now because he loves you because he loves you it says elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of god foreknowledge means to know beforehand it comes from the two greek words pro which means beforehand genosko which means to know so know beforehand god knows perfectly the future before it comes to pass and one of the reasons why is because he's ordained it but this verb to know means more than just to know about it means more than he just knows facts about you. It doesn't mean he looks down this, the history and sees what you're going to do and then he responds. It's more than that. This word, when it's used in Scripture, is, is, is about knowing a person in a deep covenantal bond. Uh, it's used of a husband and wife in a, in a relationship on how they know each other. So there's intimacy here. There's an understanding of, of one another. Again, this goes together with uh, election in Romans chapter 8. We see, for those whom God foreknew that he had a personal deep relationship, he also predestined. So if you're a Christian in here this morning, God knew you fully before you were born. And he chose you to be a, his adopted child. This is what this is saying. It says then, in the sanctification of the Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life when you first came to faith and, and him sealing you. In Ephesians chapter 1, and him giving you a, a, a heart of flesh from your heart of stone, and then continues to, to work through you, to, to grow you more into the image of Christ. 
He's the one that empowers change in your life as you read the scriptures and as you come together and with one another. He's the one that is forming you and changing you into from degree to degree of one glory to the next into the image of Christ. He's maturing you as a Christian in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, for the springing, uh, sprinkling uh, with his blood. And what this is referring to, this is referring to the initial obedience that, that we respond to the gospel in Christ. And, and this, this sprinkling takes us back to Exodus chapter 4, where, where Moses would sprinkle the people right after, uh, during the atonement sacrifice. And so this is what this sprinkling of blood, it's referring to Christ and his, his atonement for his people. That Jesus died, and because he died, his blood covers your sins and they are washed away. So what is the point? What he's trying to say here is the point is that this triune God is at work in you. He's at work in you. If you've been elected and, expo- and responded by faith to the foreknowledge of the Father, then you've been sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit, and you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you are covered. That's the point. That's what, Jesus, what Peter is saying here. And that you have now a home in heaven that could be never taken away from you. And this should give us now confidence, understanding that this is the, the, the planners of our being elect exiles, is the, the triune God. This should give us confidence to live in a world outside these walls. Should we give us confidence that when suffering and trials come, that, that God is in control and He is directing and guiding our steps and trying to teach us something. It should give us confidence to live in this world. This is why I'm, again, looking forward to this journey with First Peter, because we're going to get, dive in and get a lot more practical into the book of First Peter on what does that look like to be an elect exile. Again, over the next 12 weeks, we're going to unpack this both personally and practically. And so I hope that you guys are ready for this journey. And as we study this book again for the next 12 weeks, may you, may you be propelled by the Spirit of God to go and to read and to study this Word outside of the Sunday gathering. And that we come together and you guys are talking about it throughout your weeks and in your life groups and with those in your discipleship groups, your journey groups. And let's be really diving into 1 Peter on how to be exile in this world and how to live and be great ambassadors for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this world, this word. Thank you for the book of 1 Peter. Thank you that Peter is a man that we can resonate with and that we look forward to learning the lessons both theologically and then also how that that theological understanding lives out in us practically because we understand that right doctrine leads to right thinking and to right living. And so may we be a people that devours your word, in particular the letter of 1 Peter, this week and for the next 12 weeks. And Lord, by your spirit, may you teach us, may you guide us, and may you direct us. Not only to understand it intellectually, but then also to go out and, exp- and to live it out personally. And to be great ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.